University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Was uh, in Walnut Creek, California, which is a really, really, really white, wealthy. I ended up in my coffee shop with my cappuccino, and I got the front, or I got the, the paper, and I'm reading the front page. And it was the first moment in my life where everything inside of me shattered. Now, I want to be really clear that in 2005, I was 25 years old. I had zero friendships with Muslims. If you'd have asked me to point out Pakistan on the globe, I would have had no idea where it was. The only thing I knew about Pakistan is that I liked their food. And, uh, and, and that was it. And so I'm reading, uh, oh, I knew a couple of other things, right? Because this is in the wake of 9-11 still. This is only four years removed from 9-11. What I know is that Pakistan is, is enemy territory. And that public enemy number one is in Pakistan, in the Tora Bora Caves, wherever in the world that was. And so this is all the information I know about Pakistan. So I'm reading this newspaper and um, sipping my cappuccino, and I'm reading about 80,000 lives lost. And something just breaks open inside of me. And so I called two mentors. The first mentor, I just said, you know, this really odd thing just happened to me, and I'm paying attention to it. Uh, and, and I read this article about Pakistan, and he said, you know, I've got a friend in Pakistan, and they might actually be cracking open the door for people like you to come to Pakistan, maybe to help in some kind of way. Let me make a phone call for you. And then I called uh, my second mentor, and he said, you know, if you can establish a contact in Pakistan, I'll fund your trip. And so within an hour, I had a commitment for funding. I had a contact into Pakistan. I took my passport that afternoon. I sent it to the Pakistani embassy. I had an expedited Pakistani visa in my passport just two weeks later. And then a week after that, I was on an airplane to Islamabad, Pakistan. Because I even know where that is, right? And, uh, and so I land in Islamabad, Pakistan in a militarized airport. I'm the only U.S. American on the plane. At armed escort, I'm directed into the terminal. I get my bags, and there's a little man standing there with a sign that says, Swigart. So I get in his car. And, um, and he takes me eight hours north to a city called Basham. And what I found out later is that Basham was actually the epicenter of Al-Qaeda training, which indicates why when people looked at me, it was the first time I had ever experienced anger, rage in people's eyes. I'm just kind of a happy-go-lucky white American bro in Basham, Pakistan, you know, and, uh, and they're pretty upset that I'm there. And so the, my, my little driver, he drops me off at a UN helipad. I get into a UN helicopter. They fly me to the top of the Himalayas. I get out of the, the helicopter, and I have a journal in my hand because this is how I think. And so I always have a journal with me. And um, a Pakistani general met me. His name was Mumtaz, and he asked me how long I was there. And I said, I'm going to be here for four weeks. He said, here's your job. He looks at my journal. He says, you're going to be the communications liaison between the United Nations, the tribal villages of northern Pakistan, and the Pakistani military. So with all of my vast training as a 25-year-old Californian, uh, I said, okay. And what that meant was for the next four weeks, I listened to a, a 156 sets of village elders come to a fireplace where Mumtaz, the general, and I sat. 
And for hour after hour, I listened to village elders tell me about what happened when the earth shook, how many buildings they lost, how many lives they lost, what that was like, and what they thought they needed to make it through the winter. And I would write all these facts down, and then when the UN helicopter would land, I would negotiate with the UN commander and say, hey, here's what we need. We need these supplies here in this place to get them out into these remote villages because this is the only way these people are going to survive. So I'm negotiating, I'm listening, and I'm negotiating, I'm listening, and it's just my, my entire experience there is shattering my understanding of who God is. You see, as a, as a white American Christian, um, I thought that I brought God places. That's how I was trained, right? Like, I am a hero, and I bring God places, and because I'm there, God is so grateful for my presence, and, and God is going to do stuff because I'm in the place, but what I realize is that God predated me into that place, that God had been actively engaged in the work of restoration far before I got there. Mind you, I was the first Christian on memory to ever be where I was. Think about that. And yet God was still at work, restorative work. My constructions of enemies are just shattering as I'm in, pub, I'm, I'm in enemy territory. I'm next to the Torah Bora Caves, and then I was in the Torah Bora Caves, right? Like, I'm in the space. I parachuted into enemy territory, and yet I'm realizing that all of the constructions, all the ways that I have been taught to think about enemy, they're blowing up as I'm, bu- I'm building brotherhood friendships with these Pakistani military guys and the, the elders in this village called Jabah. It's amazing. And then I'm learning something about hospitality because I wasn't the one offering. I was the one being hosted, and it was just literally changing my life. Last day I'm there, end of four weeks, a new set of village elders walks into the the space, and they have their machine guns up like this. So all of my now friends, they raise their machine guns up, and now we have guns pointed at each other's faces. And that hadn't happened yet, so it was a little intense Right, So I'm looking at Mumtaz, the general. He's looking at me, and I'm thinking we're both probably thinking the other is going to jump in front of the bullets, you know? And, and, and so um, at an armed escort, my friends from my village, they bring these new village elders with their guns, and everybody's hot, to the fire. And now Mumtaz and I have their attention. They're looking at us and proceed to have a four-hour-long screaming match. And what I understand through translation is that these two villages had been in civil war for 30 years, that the group of village elders that just came in, they realized that the only village where the helicopter could land was the village I was staying in. That was the village they were warring against. The only way that their people were going to make it through the winter is if somehow they brokered peace with one another. And so at the end of this four-hour screaming match, Mumtaz, the general, he turns to me. He says, get your journal out. I get my journal out. He says, I need you to draft a peace treaty. Okay. So with all of my Northwestern education, I took out my pencil and I began to write the agreements that I understood being made by these two sets of village elders. And as we edited it out, finally Mumtaz said, where do I sign? So I drew a line and he signed and this village elder signed and this village elder signed and then I had to sign and then the United Nations commander signed. And then I watched this group of village elders that had come in at gunpoint now leave no longer at gunpoint. And that's the moment where everything changed for me. That's the moment where the gospel went HD. You see, in that moment, I realized that in Jesus, God had waged a decisive peace, and it worked. And it meant that people who weren't going to make it, 
We're going to make it now. But I also realized that God didn't just snap God's fingers and establish peace between these two warring villages, that I got to be a part of that. So I learned something about discipleship. I learned something about my role, my involvement, my vocation as a follower of Jesus, that my, the adventure that I've been saved into is to actually join God in making peace real in the world. I get to join God in his work of restoration changed everything for me. I come back. I had planted a church in the Bay Area called the Open Door Community. And uh, Open Door was just this, it was a community of folks that were just really trying to take seriously a life oriented around Jesus. And we kind of had this hunch that if we follow Jesus, broken stuff should get fixed. And, uh, and there was something about the church that looked like a life in practice more than a life cloistered together. And so we just trained in the way of Jesus together and we took risks together and we tried together. But open door, unbeknownst to anybody there, was really my lab rat. I wanted to understand what would happen if we actually trained people for the work of restoration? What if we actually taught people how to enter into the points of pain in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our area, in our world? Like, what if the trajectory of Jesus followers followers was toward the points of pain and toward the other more so than it was even toward people who were just like us? And so we trained people for this. It was extraordinary. Then it, it began to shift my practice. And so, um, in the Bay Area, this would probably come as no surprise to, to many of you, one of the greatest divides, one of the issues of brokenness or pain in the Bay Area is the divide between the LGBTQ community and the white Anglo, the Anglo faith community. Horribly severed relationship. Do you want to know why? Because the gay community watched their lovers and their brothers and their boyfriends and their their friends and their cousins die on the, on the steps of churches in the Bay Area while the doors remained locked. So while these people were literally dying on the front steps of churches, the church remained indifferent. That severs a relationship, right? And so as a practitioner, as a follower of Jesus, I'm not, I, I am no way am compelled towards safety. I'm compelled into the points of pain in the world, and that's a gap. That's a, that's a jagged void. And so I'm, I, I said yes to Jesus when I was 19, so I don't know all of the rules that you shouldn't hang out with the wrong people. So I went right toward them, and it was the best decision I could have made. I started to actually build relationships with people in the LGBTQ community um, and, and over time, we went from like a distance to an embrace. We started to learn from one another. We started to listen to one another. The project for us was landscaping. We got to go to the sacred space called the National AIDS Memorial Grove. We put gloves on. We dug in the soil. We made this place of healing beautiful and whole. And along the way, we're building real relationships that are changing us probably more than they were changing them. And I remember this one time. I took the executive director of the AIDS Grove. He's um, legally married in Massachusetts. He's HIV positive. Right, so now I'm, I'm have, I have all of these unique friendships that I don't really know what to do with. But I, I take him out for coffee because I had, I had invited him to speak at my church. The reason I wanted him to speak is because World AIDS Day was coming up and I wanted my community to understand the pain and plight of people who were trapped in the system in the, uh, in, in the, the, the AIDS pandemic. So I asked him to come to Open Door and tell the story of AIDS as it ravaged San Francisco and as it played out in his own life. 
And so he did that, and, and then um, and I followed up with, with a teaching on the Good Samaritan, what it means to embody neighbor love. Um, but before, we, uh, before he came to, to, uh, to open door to speak with us, um, we sat down and he said, you know, I've been invited to speak at the White House. I've been invited to speak in front of Senate. Um, I've, invited, I've done some eulogies, but I've never one time been invited into a church to tell my story. And then he asked this really dynamic question. He said, hey, when did we become us? As he pronouns started to shift in this relationship, which indicated to me that, that the, the jagged divides, the, the things that were severed between us, they were beginning to be repaired. He walks into open door. He starts by saying, you've been coming to our sanctuary for seven years now. It's overdue for me to come to your sanctuary. After that conversation, he said, your Jesus, what I just experienced in this place, your Jesus is worth following. So his perspective of Jesus is being restored, his perspective of the church, of Christians is being restored along the way. So all of these unique things uh, started to happen in our practice. And then uh, shortly thereafter, the Global Immersion Project was born because we wanted to figure out how do we actually teach people how to live as instruments of peace in the world? How do we teach American Christians to move toward the points of pain in the world equipped to heal rather than to win? How do, we, um, how do we embody our vocation as everyday peacemakers in the world in ways that cause restoration to spring to life? And so the Global Immersion Project was born to help train the North American church to become an instrument of peace because the great surprise, maybe for many of us, is that we never have been an instrument of peace. The U.S. American church has never embodied our vocation as everyday peacemakers. And so the Global Immersion Project was born to help us uh, become that in, in the world. Um, I want to offer a, a couple thoughts, and so that's, that's what I lead now, and I spend my life uh, raising the capacity of the church for the work of, uh, of peacemaking. Now, a, a word on peacemaking. When I say peacemaking, for some of us, the images of like Volkswagen buses and hippies and dreadlocks comes to mind, I imagine. Part of what we're trying to rescue is peacemaking away from like an esoteric theory to an embodied cross-shaped way of life. The other thing I want to say about peacemaking is that I'm not suggesting here that, there's, uh, that peacemaking is a brand of following Jesus, that it's maybe an add-on to um, our practices of already following Jesus. I'm saying it's central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If God waged peace in Jesus and it worked, then we're saved into the adventure of restoration. Moving toward the points of pain in the world is our vocation. It is our adventure um, and, and so when I talk about peacemaking, I'm not talking about like, like hippie, soft, euphoric stuff. I'm talking about gritty, subversive, cross-shaped life that, that ushers in the restoration uh, that God made real on the cross. I want to um, talk a little bit about the integration of, of faith and where it lands for me. When I introduce myself, I, I usually introduce myself as a follower of Jesus first, an everyday peacemaker, a husband and a daddy, and a Christian faith leader. Chronology matters for me. Uh, my faith in Jesus, it informs all of those, um, all of those things. And, so, and the same is true of my citizenship. My faith informs my citizenship and not vice versa. And I think if we can point our finger to some stuff that's going on in our world right now, it's that the chronology of citizenship and faith is being upset a little bit. 
For some of us, our citizenship is informing our faith, and for some of us, our faith is informing our citizenship, and it's causing us to get into it with one another. For me, I want to say my faith informs my citizenship, and it's really important that it happens in that order. I do not expect the U.S. government to act in a way that is informed by nor conformed to the teachings of Jesus. And here's why. The U.S. government accumulates status, abundance, and safety through the use of power. That's how the system is designed to work. We accumulate status, abundance, and safety through the use of power. But from Jesus' perspective, he's fixated on redemption, restoration, and human flourishing through costly creative love. So the system that we live in is one that uses power to get and the, the, the adventure that Jesus invites us into is, is the adventure of restoration and redemption and flourishing through giving it all away. And so I don't expect the U.S. government to function like Jesus. Um, but I will say this, that um, I do affirm the role of the U.S. government to discern and make decisions that prioritize national security. And being that our conversation tonight is about faith-informed citizenship and how are we to think about things like refugees and immigrants and the executive orders and so on and so forth, um, I, I want to be very clear. I affirm the role of a government, a power over system, to make decisions that prioritize national safety. However, it is my faith that compels me to ensure that my government makes decisions in ways that prioritize the dignity, the humanity, and the quality of every image bearer of God on the planet. It is my role as a follower of Jesus, and it is our role in the church, as the church, to in moments like these right now speak truth to power, to call out when human beings are being marginalized, when they're being exploited, when their equality, their dignity, and the image of God in them is being marred by brutal systems. And so as a follower of Jesus, as a faith leader, as an everyday peacemaker, it is my job, and I think it is our job to compel our, um, our government to make decisions that protect the humanity and dignity and image of God. Now, if we're going to have a conversation about politics and faith and citizenship, um, a question that I often get is, um, was, do you think Jesus was political then? And um, people chuckled and laughed. Like, two books that I want to recommend on, on this particular issue is this one, The Politics of Jesus by John Howard Yoder, and then the second one is The Myth of a Christian Nation by Greg Boyd. So I don't have that up there. But the Myth of a Christian Nation by Greg Boyd. Um, in both books, um, these two theologians um, are crystal clear that Jesus stood diametrically opposed to any and every system that compromised the humanity, the dignity, and the image of God in human beings. Jesus stood diametrically opposed to any faith system, religious system, imperial system, politic that compromised the humanity, the dignity, and the image of God in, um, in human beings. That makes Jesus political. Now, Jesus wasn't partisan like we're partisan. This silly system didn't exist, but Jesus was absolutely political. Why? Because he came to bring in a system that was oriented around the kingdom of God that promoted the, the flourishing of human beings. And, and so, uh, one more thought on this is that I think it's really important for us to, 
um, to move beyond this, uh, the, the, the thought that the faith community in the United States isn't political or shouldn't be political. Um, because we live in a political milieu. It's impossible not to be political. Our silence is political. And so, again, our faith must inform our citizenship. Our faith in Jesus must orient the way that we are political in the world that we live in. And, and so, I, I, I think it's irresponsible of us to suggest that we're, we're Christians, we don't get political. Yeah, 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 it's the milieu that we live in. Now, how do we help this system Think about the humanity, dignity, and image of God and everybody on the planet. Um, yeah. Secondly, secondly, is if we're going to have a conversation about citizenship and faith and politics, uh, it's going to be uncomfortable and dissonant, and there's going to be you're, we're going to feel disoriented. And um, and many of us have been trained in a system that tells us that discomfort, disorientation, uh, and disequilibrium are signs that something wrong is happening. And so we try to fix that by moving beyond the dissonance, beyond the discomfort, beyond the disorientation as quickly as possible. I want to suggest this evening that as we move through a conversation around faith-informed citizenship, that when we feel dissonance or discomfort um, or disorientation, that we might see it as the spirit roaming untamed in here that we might actually see it as God saying, this is where I want you to linger. <laughs> like, let's sit in the discomfort. Like, maybe where we feel disequilibrium tonight or dissonance, we can understand it as a cue that something very right is happening, that this is the stuff of human transformation. Um, and so as we go, there's a couple of questions I want to just in, invite you to think about. Um, as I share and as we do some Q&A in a little bit, um, three questions, where did emotions surface for you? Like either in major agreement or major disagreement or I hated what he said or that's a, you know, whatever. So like something stirs inside of you. Pay attention to that. Jot it down. Uh, let's talk about that in the Q&A. Secondly, what questions does this raise? If it's true that my faith should inform my citizenship and not vice versa, what questions does that raise for me? Is Jesus, was he really political? I'm not sure what I think about that, right? It down. And what are my next steps? My hunch is that when, um, when people uh, get together and we're pursuing Jesus together, the Spirit is present and is actually inviting us into transformation and movement. And so my hunch is that something is probably going to happen for you in this room uh, that, that feels like the stuff of next steps. So pay attention to that. Um, and even if it's like a hunch, I wonder if I'm supposed to do this. Yeah, write that down. That'll be, that'll be good to think about. The, um, tonight as I go, these are the scriptures. I want to invite you to maybe, I'm not going to linger on this long, but if you want to take a picture of that, these are the scriptures that I'm going to be moving in and out of. These are the scriptures that really inform my thoughts uh, tonight on what it means to live as, uh, as a faith-informed citizen of the United States of America. I want to point out most specifically this first one that, um, that indicates that all of us are image bearers of God. And what that means is that you and I, we were created in community, by community, for community, that I do not hold the monopoly of all of God's image in me, that the image of God is only realized when I am in diverse relationship with you. We need each other, okay? Um, and, and so, like, this, this Genesis 126 27 bit is not an individualistic thing. It is a communal thing. It is, imply, it is meant to imply mutual interdependence. We desperately need each other to experience the fullness of the image of God, which means that me by myself, I, I'm not all the, I need you. We need one another. 
Um, and so it's also a push against homogenous cloisters where I'm just hanging with people who are just like me. That doesn't give me an accurate representation of the image of God. I want to see the image of God, which means I need you. I need all of you, and you need me too, okay? So these are the, the passages that I'm going to move through. Um, Okay, let's get into, let's get into some nitty-gritty here. My, um, I want to say one last thing, and then we'll get into executive orders. My expertise is in peacemaking and conflict transformation, not politics and not political analysis. Okay, so I'm going to say that um, from the very beginning. However, my vocation demands that I am a student of conflict. It demands that I learn about complex conundrums like the immigration phenomenon and the global refugee crisis. These are some of the greatest humanitarian crises of my time. And so as an everyday peacemaker and as someone who leads a peacemaking organization, it is my responsibility. But I'll take that a step more universal and say it is our responsibility as followers of Jesus to get in touch with the greatest humanitarian crises of our time to be students of this, to learn everything that we can learn. And so for the past decade, I have given my life to the study of these complex conundrums from an intellectual standpoint and from a relational standpoint. It's impossible for me to get a robust understanding of the issues that we're going to talk about tonight if I am not relationally connected to the pain and to the plight of the people who are caught in the wake of these broken systems. Okay, and so you're going to hear some of those stories um, here tonight. Obviously, we're in a, a new era. It's an era marked uh, by a whole bunch of things, um, but, uh, but most notably, executive orders. I want to say just a, a brief word on an executive order. Is, um, is it, it's a presidential decree that carries the weight of law but does not carry the strength and durability of law. One of the main reasons that's true is because everything that is, um, is spoken into an executive order is actually contingent upon uh, the, the funding of Congress. And so um, what's happening, and I, I'm going to speak less to the, the ins and outs, the intricacies of the executive orders, and more to the human impact of them. What has, um, what, how have... Due to technical difficulties, recording was interrupted at this point of the presentation.